Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. What's the first thing we remember when we think of grade school history class? Our teachers had us memorizing dates and names of treaties for exams, but there's so much more to learn about our history and the world we live in. Welcome to WhatsApp, where we tell the stories beyond dates and add a fresh perspective to the way you think of the Philippines. For today, we're going to talk about Korea. <laughs> You're probably thinking, what? I thought you just said the Philippines. Don't worry. We are talking about the Philippines. Korea is not that far, you guys. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the Korean War, or as many people call it, the Forgotten War. Why was it forgotten? And why should we remember it? 안녕하세요, 여러분. 제 이름은 CJ요. Or in English, Hi everyone, I'm Siege Dantanko, TV host and podcaster. But eight years ago, I was an exchange student in Seoul. The Korean TV channel Educational Broadcasting System, or EBS, partnered six Filipino students with six Korean students to work on documentaries, all to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the Korean War. That's what kicked off my love for Korean culture. And I'm Sab Schnabel, a historian and a comedian who grew up in Manila, studied history in the U.S., and I watched that Netflix Explained episode about K-pop. Oh, you like K-pop? What, man? Do you like Blackpink? Because... I just bought shoes last week because they were endorsing them and Gang- you know like Gangnam Style? <laughs> I'm gonna hit you with that doo-doo-doo-doo-doo. <laughs> I'm sorry. I watched the episode but I was so distracted by the dance moves and the flawless skin. Oh, that's alright because I brought you some snail sheep masks from Korea. Thank you. Yep, because I was just there last May because my friend got married. And let me tell you, our relationship with Korea is much deeper and more important than you think. So, more than just excellent street food? Way more! The Philippines was entwined with a war that defined Korea's borders and identity. And in this war, we were the first responders. Today, we're going to remember the Forgotten War and discuss our place in it. More on this after the break. Like every episode of WhatsApp, we will begin with Pearl of the Orientation, a segment where we look at what was happening in the rest of the world to situate us in the events of history. The period we'll be talking about today, the 1950s, was a decade that saw the aftermath of World War II and the rapid cooling of the relationships between the winners of that war, the U.S., the U.K., the USSR, and China, an emerging power. Here in the Philippines, the 1950s were all about the reconstruction efforts. Elpidio Quirino was president, and his administration was scrambling to drag us out of the aftermath of World War II. But despite the gloom of Reconstruction, we were able to produce the first full-color Philippine film, Principe Amante, in 1951. In 1952, Gloriana Regina, Queen Elizabeth II, ascends the throne of the United Kingdom. She was 25. Wait, it's not Regina? Nope, Regina. They say that on the crown. Rhymes with vagina. vagina. <laughs> Can you imagine being the queen of an empire at 25? I'm 
28. 30. I feel super unaccomplished <laughs> now. Okay, so that was 1952. Let's go back to the Philippines. In 1953, the Alta Broadcasting System makes the first television broadcast in Southeast Asia through DZAQ-TV. Alta Broadcasting System is still around today. You know it as ABS-CBN. What's up, my young people? The global concern of the 1950s was the Cold War, the war between the capitalist West and the communist East. After the Allies beat the Axis powers in World War II, they founded the United Nations, a worldwide governing body that was supposed to prevent World War III from happening. And then they splintered into opposing ideologies, communism and democracy. Because they were all friends now, and they had a document to prove it, they couldn't go to war with each other despite how much they wanted to. So the Cold War was a sneaky war, where battles couldn't be fought between these so-called allies, so they had to be fought in other places, like Asia. The West was worried about something called a domino effect, worried that if one country fell to communism, soon the rest would too. Which is why when the North Koreans got kind of handsy and aggressive with the South in 1950, the UN saw it as a big deal. Before we get into all that, have you ever wondered why there's a North Korea and a South Korea? Well, after World War II, Korea, which had been occupied by the Japanese, was split at the 38th parallel. That would be the latitude that's roughly in the middle of the country. The North was led by communist Kim Il-sung, the eternal president. I think we all know about his cult of personality. And the South was led by less famous, somewhat democratic, pro-American Syngman Rhee. In Korean, Syngman Rhee is pronounced differently. What many say as Rhee is actually the last name E. In Korean, you'd actually say Lee Syngman. We'll get a bit more into the difficulty of transliterating the Korean language later. Both sides went back and forth, warring over territory and trying to unite the country under their respective regimes. But unfortunately, on June 25, 1950, Kim Il-sung invaded South Korea. And that's when Korea became the battleground not just of two opposing Korean ideologies, but rather as a proxy war for a much bigger struggle. Before the UN intervened, the South Korean forces were pushed all the way to Busan. If you've watched the movie Train to Busan, you would know it as as south as you can go before you're basically in the Pacific Ocean. Busan and Busan are the same place. And now this is the weirding of translation, or in this case, transliteration. It's not because Sab sucks at pronouncing this. It's also because we are transliterating Korean words. We're using the Latin alphabet to spell words from another writing system. Like, example, if we used baybayin to write the word meme. So some English books spelled as B-U-S-A-N, some use P-U-S-A-N, but in the Korean pronunciation, it's all the same. Busan. Okay, also I'm bad at pronouncing it. <laughs> anyway, the South Koreans had been pushed to Busan, and that's when the anti-communist West had to intervene. So they pushed a resolution through the UN to come to the rescue. And here is where it gets kind of complicated. Remember how all the Allies founded the UN? Didn't that include the communist forces of China and the USSR? Well, in this instance, the two communist founding members were cut out of the discussion. This part of the story is super fraught with politics, even today. But for the purposes of this episode, what you need to know is that the USSR and China were excluded from that summit. And that's how the UN was able to go around two of its founding members to send a 16-country coalition to Korea. Commanded, because of course they were... 
by Douglas MacArthur. He returned! Yeah, he came with the cavalry. The UN coalition forces, led by Supreme Commander MacArthur, were able to retake the South in a matter of weeks. Except that here, the general went too far. It was he who insisted that the UN forces should invade North Korea. To win the war decisively, the troops were ordered to go as far as the Yalu River, the border with China. He didn't think that Russia and China would invade. According to the log of U.S. President Harry Truman's trip to Wake Island, MacArthur thought that even if the Chinese invaded, they wouldn't be effective combatants and insisted at his conference with President Truman that, quote, If the Chinese tried to get down to Pyongyang, there would be the greatest slaughter. Which was totally wrong. The Chinese did get down to Pyongyang, and this is where the tide turned. The UN was so close to containment. The original goal was staying at the 38th parallel and maintaining the status quo. But invading the North forced the communist powers to intervene. And so the war, which was supposed to be done by Christmas 1950, stretched out with no end in sight. For three years, both sides struggled back and forth. And in 1953, North and South Korea signed an armistice. A ceasefire, in other words, at the 38th parallel where all of this had started. Is it weird that I want to travel back in time and watch all of this go down? You want to time travel to a war? Sure, ka. Yes, I mean, no. Well, what I mean is I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens, gets. I get what you mean, to get gets. But while we're waiting for a time machine, I know a lightning fast way you can relive historical events. And how's that? By the power of the internet, of course. There are so many cool documentaries you can watch about the Korean War. And you can even look up old photos of the Filipino soldiers. We saved some of these black and white photos and used an app to recolor them, which we've posted on the WhatsApp Facebook page. Technology! And it's not just us. We've recently heard of a group of Filipino veterans who digitized their old cassette-recorded interviews about their experiences in the Korean War. They're even sharing it on Facebook. So take advantage of digital solutions. Do it better with the strongest connection. With speeds of up to 1,000 Mbps from PLDT Home's Fiber Plus plan, you can search the farthest corners of the internet to learn new trivia in seconds, even without a time stone. Find out how at pldthome.com slash fiber plus. That's F-I-B-R-P-L-U-S. And now, back to the episode. Now that we've given you some background on the Korean War, we're going to talk about the Philippine Expeditionary Forces to Korea, or PEFTOK, a volunteer force that were some of the very first boots on the ground. Our boys won important battles, achieved strategic objectives, and we even had our own 300 moment. This is PEFTOK! <laughs> Stay with us. The Philippines sent approximately 7,000 men in five battalion combat teams, or BCTs, to be part of the UN coalition. This might seem small, but this was a force of volunteers. Our country was beleaguered with reconstruction efforts and insurrections, but President Quirino insisted that if we could help, if we could be of service, we should answer the call. 
Filipinos, by our own admission, were in relatively good spirits. Or at least that's what the soldier said in the excellent documentary, March of the Valiant, produced by the National Historical Commission of the Philippines. In this documentary, veterans were interviewed and asked to talk about the war in their own words. So let's listen to them. The Philippines sent five battalion combat teams to Korea with a total strength of 7,420 officers and men. And it was only through the idea of President Trino. Now, we volunteered. We were never forced. I was young and we were trained, so we were prepared. No shaken thoughts. And since we had all volunteered, we were a very happy bunch, in spite of the fact that we anticipated hardships and deathly threats on the Korean front. So there they were, volunteers, ready to defend democracy. Morale was good, but winter was coming. And when the temperature started to drop, things got real. And once the winter, the coldest in many years, had given way to spring, a flood of Chinese soldiers came down from the north. The spring offensive was a force of 548,000 men that was supposed to sweep the UN forces off the peninsula. On April 23, the offensive reached the UN battle lines at Yultong. The position was being held by the Philippine 10th Battalion Combat Group, who fought alongside Turkish and Puerto Rican soldiers. But when the Chinese came over the hill in the middle of the night, their allies gave. The Filipinos were surrounded. Their communications fell, but they did not waver. They kept going. They kept shooting. Everyone participated. Cooks and clerks defended the line. They fought with everything they had. And in the morning, when the dust settled and the waves of communist forces stopped coming, they won. 10th BCT's action at Yultong allowed the U.S. 3rd Infantry Division to successfully withdraw from the battlefield and turned the tide of the war. According to March of the Valiant, 700 Filipinos repelled 40,000 communist troops. They lost 24 men. They were honored with a U.S. Gallantry Award and the nickname, the Fighting Filipinos. And you'll never guess who we found. Here's Marco Azurin, whose great-grandfather was the commanding officer of the 10th BCT before the Battle of Yultong. He was dismissed from his position because he insisted on better equipment. He fought for his men because winter had come. My great-grandfather was Lieutenant Colonel Mariano Azurin. He was the first commanding officer of the 1st Filipino Battalion sent to Korea. History accounts remember him most as the colonel who was relieved of his command for protesting against one of the American commanders. He got angry because they didn't supply him and his men with sufficient winter clothing during what was the coldest winter Korea has seen at that point. But before that, he already clashed with the U.S. Army. This was because they didn't provide his battalion with the tanks they needed. So this naturally frustrated him because he had under his command essentially a tankless tank battalion. And to avoid further straining their relations with the Americans, the Philippine government had to relieve him of his command and my great-grandfather was sent back home. I first heard this story when I was old enough to do my own research on my great-grandfather. And initially, it was not the kind of story the 12-year-old me had hoped to learn about. It wasn't as glamorous as I was expecting, but as I grew older, I've come to admire him deeply for what he did. The story didn't have to be a glorious one in order to depict heroism. The fact that he stuck out for his men the way he did, to the point of losing his command, 
that is already deserving of respect. And it's not just my great-grandfather, really. I think many ordinary people did extraordinary things because the era called for it. And I think it shows what kind of bravery and heroism anyone is capable of. Now, when I say Ninoy Aquino, what comes to mind? Handog ng Pilipino sa mundo Mapayapang Oh my god, Sab, stop, Sab Oh my god, I re- immediately regret my decision <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure not many of you know that Ninoy Aquino started his professional life as a war correspondent He was always precocious and feisty, but at 17, he decided that he was going to be a journalist. So he went to the Manila Times and told them that he wanted to go to Korea. His editor, Chino Roses, said no. So he got on a plane and went to Korea anyway, figuring they couldn't say no once he was sending packets of articles back. And they didn't. From that point on, Ninoy became a roving reporter for the Manila Times. His fellow journalists, notably Johnny Villasanta, Teddy Benigno, and Max Oliven, recounted to Art Villasanta, Johnny's son, that Aquino was fearless, often hiding under piles of bodies or wading through refuse to be where the action is. Fun fact, on the back of the old 500 peso bill, there used to be a photo of Ninoy as a reporter, and the background was one of his actual articles from the Korean War. Another hero from this war was Fidel Ramos. Ramos was one of the volunteers. He was a member of the 20th Battalion and led his platoon on an integral mission at the Battle of Erie Hill. Fidel Ramos led his platoon without losing a single man despite the coldest temperatures in like 200 years. They got up at 4 a.m. and achieved their objective. Let's remember that he was 22 when he was in Korea. Again, anong ginagawa ko sa buhay ko? For his service, Ramos has received many awards from all over the world. The highlights include the Philippine Legion of Honor in 1988 and 1991, the United States Legion of Merit, and the French Legion of Honor. Ramos later founded the Philippine Army Special Forces, but that was 1968, so he was 34. Oh, yeah, and Sab, you have four years to start something. Let's talk about anything else. I mean, (laughs) another president, the commander-in-chief who led us to Korea, He was in his 60s. Do you feel better now? Yes, thank you. Participating in the UN coalition in Korea was one of the very first foreign policy decisions of President Elpidio Quirino. And if the Philippines was going to war, he was going to send his own family first. Elpidio Quirino's life was not an easy one. He lost his wife and three of his children in the Battle of Manila. His presidency was rocked by internal conflict. But despite all that, Quirino saw that we could be of service. He sent his only remaining son to the front, as well as his son-in-law. He had already lost so much. The death of his wife and children was only six years ago to him. And still, he sent his family. In the March of the Valiant, the veterans of Peftok remember him saying that he, quote, sent ahead of us my son and son-in-law. In defense of democracy, I submit my own blood, end quote. They went because Quirino inspired them. If that doesn't tell you something about the resilience of the Filipino spirit, I don't know what will. So if this was so important, if this was one of our first foreign policy decisions, why is it barely mentioned in our textbooks? One possibility is that 
There was no happy ending where the good guys defeated the bad guys. Just a tie. For most of the world, it just faded from view. But not for the Koreans. Koreans on both sides lost. Millions of people died. Families were fractured. I think it's fair to assume we all know North Korea's reputation. But many of those stories are South Korean too. Many of them are divided by a border drawn by someone else. A border that is the most heavily guarded place in the world. The DMZ. The demilitarized zone at the 38th parallel. Isn't the DMZ now a tourist destination? Oh yeah, you can take a tour of some of the sites. It's just a two-hour bus ride from Seoul. You can see the Joint Security Area, the Bridge of No Return, the fourth tallest flagpole in the world, and the third infiltration tunnel, which the North Koreans dug after the ceasefire was signed <laughs> in an attempt to launch a surprise attack. Because my exchange student program was literally commemorating the war, the TV station was actually able to take us to parts of the DMZ where tourists are normally not allowed. Like, we went to an active outpost where a South Korean soldier showed us marks and bulletproof glass from where the North had shot at them. Whoa. We went inside the soldiers' barracks and... um. There was a sign that said, Danger, landmines, do not cross. My friends and I thought it would be funny to take pictures near the fence. No, siege. <laughs> and a South Korean soldier yanked me away. <laughs> yeah, because landmines. Yeah. Anyway, what does this mean for the Philippines and how we look at our history? Well, our soldiers were involved. It was one of our first big foreign policy decisions as a sovereign nation. Hell, the Battle of Yotong was our first major victory on foreign soil. And yet, it's utterly glossed over in many textbooks. Perhaps because the world glossed it over. No side won. It's not a good story. So we forgot it. But South Korea has never forgotten. The South remembers! Sab, no one likes GOT anymore. When you go to South Korea, you'll see how the war has shaped their culture today. Mandatory military service is still a thing. It's common to see people walking around in fatigues. K-pop girl groups give special performances to the troops, and you should definitely look them up on YouTube because the soldiers lose their minds. In the National War Memorial of Korea, which is this giant museum in Seoul, there's a statue of two brothers embracing, one in a North Korean uniform and another in a South Korean one. In one hall, you'll see a plaque with the names of the Filipino soldiers who gave their lives in this conflict. In Goyang City, there's a monument specifically for the Peftok forces, because the South remembers. Sometimes, we Filipinos have this inferiority complex of, I'm just a Filipino, I'm just this. Like saying, third world lang kami, what can I do, what can we do? Well, just after World War II, after so much fighting and hardship, what we did was voluntarily turn and help someone else. And we allowed it to be forgotten because the U.S. and the USSR are embarrassed about the Korean War. If only we could see ourselves the way our Korean cousins do, as heroes. all kind of dark, but this being WhatsApp, we found something pretty weird to share with all of you, and hopefully end this one on a lighter note. Did you know that Tootsie Rolls saved lives in the Battle of Chosin? No, Chosin. Oh, sorry. Chosin. 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 Tootsie okay. Rolls saved lives in the Battle of Chosin. 
Tootsie Rolls are gross. What? Tootsie Rolls are the best! Who wouldn't want crates full of Tootsie Rolls? Uh, the soldiers stationed at the Choshin Reservoir were expecting ammunition? Oh, snap! So remember earlier when we said that winter conditions in Korea were terrible? Well, imagine being surrounded by enemy forces while it's freezing. It's in the middle of the coldest winter ever, and your resupply is just crates full of Tootsie Rolls. You heard that right. The troops had ordered 16mm mortar rounds, codenamed Tootsie Rolls. So they called the higher-ups for more rounds, more Tootsie Rolls, and before you could say... Uh, uh, so, sorry, line. The airdrop came, and they opened the crates to see actual Tootsie Rolls. <laughs> then, the soldiers realized that A... Tootsie Rolls are edible, even when they are frozen. They can be warmed in your mouth and chewed. So practical and delicious. Delicious is an opinion, Sam. And B, when they were warmed, they became a putty that would then freeze over very quickly. A delicious putty. The soldiers used Tootsie Rolls to patch bullet holes in gas tanks, supply drums, hoses, basically whatever they could. The putty would refreeze and plug up the leaks. They even used the candy to repair vehicles which they rode to safety. So, a blessing from the skies was also a blessing in disguise. I hate you. I don't. No, I don't. But you will. The UN coalition troops at the Choshin Reservoir call themselves the Choshin Few. I guess we really can't throw stones. We are the hosts of a podcast called WhatsApp. The Choshin Few fought bravely and somehow managed to break enemy lines against incredible odds. They made it to the safety of Hongnam with their patched up vehicles. And the soldiers credit their survival to those delicious Tootsie Rolls. Class dismissed! Subscribe to WhatsApp Araling Panlipunan Rebooted on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We have lots more to cover, so be sure to tune in. And you can join the discussion on social media. Follow us on Twitter at History Rebooted, on Facebook.com slash History Rebooted, and on Instagram at History.Rebooted. Leave us a review on Facebook and we'll give you a shout out on our next episode. Follow us on social media. Siege is at Siege the Day, and I'm at Sab Schnabel. Again, that's S C H N A B E L. It means loudmouth in German. Ah. Yeah, I know. It's genetic. I can't stop talking. Yep. Well, thank you for listening. We're Siege and Sab, Puma Podcast. This episode of WhatsApp, Araling Panlipunan Rebooted, is brought to you by Puma Podcast. It was produced by Pauline Reyes and edited by Nina Toralba of Puma Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.